Welcome back to the 121st episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including two stories that show the different sides of Joe Biden, his brilliance, and maybe his less than bright side. And a article talking about the invasion of the Mer people and Space Force's first true enemy that they can take on. It is a satirical article, but I enjoyed it. So we're going to talk about that one. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. All right, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So depending on what news source you listen to or you read, or even which day you listen or read from that news source, Joe Biden is either the absolute evil genius or smartest man alive, or he's an old dullard who doesn't know what he's doing and is giving too many concessions. Which do you see him as? Is he a mastermind or is he a moron? Let me know what your opinions are down in the comment section. And of course, if you think he's somewhere in between and I'm being too harsh or too kind one way or the other, let me know. All right, with that out of the way, let's jump into our first story coming from the Washington Examiner. Is Biden sleepwalking into war with Russia? So obviously you can tell when I said there's two stories talking about the different sides of Biden. This is one coming from the Washington Examiner. It's going to be a little bit less than kind to his actions because of the conservative leaning of this newspaper. But this is not the evil genius perspective. This is the stupid old dullard perspective. And it's very, very interesting when you see the flip-flopping. You see some Republicans going out and saying, oh, Biden, you know, he may seem a little bit incompetent, but he's really putting together a plan and systematically destroying parts of our republic, so on and so forth. And then you see stories like this where it's like, no, no, he's he's just stupid. He doesn't know what he's doing. And, you know, I don't always agree with the criticism against him. I don't always agree with the praise that he receives. Sometimes he does deserve praise when he does something right, and sometimes he deserves ridicule when he does something wrong. It's just so interesting to see the large dichotomy when you look at the representation of Joe Biden in both liberal and conservative media, and then also within the branches of those media. Like sometimes MSNBC will have a very different opinion than CNN. And sometimes the Common Dreams, which is a more progressive outlet, is more willing to call out Joe Biden and say some of his policies are stupid. So it is nice to see some dissent from within each side. They're not all towing the exact same line. But if you're looking for the same line on Biden, you're probably going to come to Republican news sources and hear a lot more of the, oh, he's, he's so old, you can see his cognitive decline, which is 100% true. If you hear some of his speeches, I, I'm listening, I'm like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. I know that I'm not necessarily the best at listening, but I still need you to go back because I don't even think you said an actual word there. So let's go into describing this metaphor, sleepwalking is how they describe it, into war with Russia. Quote, A grinding local conflict on Europeans' periphery, Russian nuclear threats, slowly escalating NATO military aid to Ukraine. Critics of American policy urging caution, arguing that the United States is sleepwalking into a great power war. 
their diagnosis, that Washington is slowly but surely marching towards a direct conflict, and this might prove correct, but only if Washington follows their advice. The sleepwalking metaphor is in international in international relations gained new popularity with the 2012 publication of Christopher Clark's History of the Crisis of 1914, which was widely read in Washington. In The Sleepwalkers, How Europe Went to War in 1914, he concluded, quote, the protagonists of 1914 were sleepwalkers, watchful but unseen, haunted by dreams yet blind to the reality of the horror that they were about to bring into the world, end quote. But simply, actors across the continent took understandable steps to pursue their country's own interests, but failed to foresee how these actions could interact to bring a world-changing conflagration, end quote. So the last point is really something that we need to focus on, or at least you need to think about. Some people who don't agree with this war on either side of the political aisle will say, why are we in Russia? What do we gain from being in Russia? And the argument that we come back with is maybe threefold. One, we're fighting an authoritarian government in Putin. We don't want to allow him to spread his authoritarian style of government. It's kind of like the keep communism buttressed in, make sure that we surround them and keep them from spreading. It's kind of along the lines of those arguments. There's number two that, well, Ukraine was attacked by Russia with no provocation, and we have to defend Ukraine's sovereignty as a matter of principle. That also, in my opinion, holds a little a little bit of weight. I think that is important that we recognize, yes, of course, nations are sovereign, and any hostile nation, nation just going in and trying to take territory and claim it as their own and basically destroy another sovereign government that should be, on principle alone, should at least be part of the consideration. But then you have to come to the third one, which is not necessarily stated as much because it's not it's not nice to be realistic and call out what we're doing, but we're just anti-Russia. We want to contain Russian influence. We want to make sure that NATO stays strong, that our European allies do not become too reliant on Russian oil, and the closer they get and the more powerful they become, the more the European Union has to acknowledge them, interact with them, trade with them. And we don't want this Germany, you probably heard the talking point, we don't want a Germany-Russia, what's the word I'm looking for here? We don't want a Germany-Russia alliance where you have German ingenuity with Russian labor to create a new alignment of powers in Europe, in, in the world. So, this is the third reason. I think it's the most realistic reason, but it's just not stated as much. And in doing so, in pursuing our self-interest of preventing this change in the power dynamics of the world, we're supporting Ukraine and making sure, or trying to make sure that Russia does not get what it wants out of this war. But in doing so, in pursuing our own self-interest, are we not actually making the problem worse? And I, I'm, to be clear, I'm not saying that we are or we aren't, because I, I don't know. I can't see the future. All I'm saying is when Russia amends its constitution or its laws to say that it can use nuclear weapons when it feels that the nation is at threat for almost any reason, 
that definitely says, okay, we're getting closer here to a result that we may not like. We're getting closer to escalation that goes beyond the borders in Ukraine, but directly threatens the United States and the rest of the world. And are we putting on our blinders, trying to make sure Ukraine wins, but missing the bigger picture? And that's what this author is trying to highlight here. That's what happened in 1914. Each state was pursuing their self-interest. They were trying to ensure that their nation came out on top, that if there was a war to happen, that they would be the ones who won. But in doing so, they all pushed each other towards a larger world war. The same framing could go for Putin as well. He's trying to seem like a strong leader. He's trying to reunite part of a Russian population that is stuck in Ukraine and deter them from becoming closer with NATO. All of these are within the Russian interest. Would they really want another NATO country right on their border? Ironically, pushing to get Ukraine, they now have Finland and Sweden that are trying to join NATO. And they're actually put, putting more, I'm not saying directly that Finland and Sweden are just joining because of Russia. They probably want to join for a while, but because of this provocation, now they're saying, okay, yeah, we definitely need into NATO. He's actually pushing for his own self-interest and harming himself in the end. And he's going to make tensions worse because he'll have more NATO border countries next to him. And if he doesn't fully take Ukraine, that is just one more nation that has a possibility of going into the NATO alliance and having a border with Russia. So everybody's pursuing their own self-interest. But it feels like we are just walking towards the edge of a cliff and the author would point out, no, no, we're not just walking, we're sleepwalking because we don't even realize we're doing it half the time. Or even if we realize we're doing it, we're kind of ignoring the future consequences because we're pursuing our self-interest so vehemently. So let's go to the three different arguments that critics may pose about this. And then we can move on to the next article, which is a really fun one. But... Let's get through these first, because I think they're, they're good criticisms. Quote, critics may take three simplistic arguments. Former President Barack Obama, during his time in office, was the most prominent advocate of the first. Russia will always care more about Ukraine than the U.S. does, and thus will never back down. So if, we're, if you're following here, what the author is trying to highlight here is why we need to be more cautious going into this battle with Ukraine. And he has a very interesting point of view that he ends this article with, but let's get through these other two arguments. Quote, the second sleepwalking argument has a continuing arms delivery to Ukraine will almost inevitably lead to direct NATO engagement in war between two nuclear armed powers will result. As Rep. Andy Burgess put it, Quote, sending 31 Abrams tanks to Ukraine brings us closer to a major world war. You can bet we'll be sending American troops to Ukraine to operate these tanks. And of course, the third argument comes from Emmanuel Macron of France. Quote, summed up when he argued that Europe had stumbled during World War II by humiliating Germany in 1918 and cautioned that humiliating Vladimir Putin today will lead to future Russian aggression and revenship, end quote. So I think all of these arguments as to 
why the U.S. should not necessarily be involved or involved as heavily are all valid. Yes, the more we want them to win, the more we're going to send them arms, which means eventually we may be sending troops in order to operate those arms or in order to achieve our goal. I think that's a huge escalation. I don't see it happening anytime soon. But if we really believe Ukraine is in dire straits, we may do it. Or something may happen, a false flag or some attack may happen to a U.S. vessel like the Lusitania and or maybe an attack on Pearl Harbor. I'm not saying that's actually going to happen, but I'm saying that maybe something of that nature happens that pulls us in to the war, just like the previous world wars that we were engaged in. And I also think humiliating Vladimir Putin too much. I mean, he seems like a very prideful man, and he relies on strength within his country. In order to preserve his strength, he's going to have to up his aggression in order to keep his power. So, you know, maybe we're playing this the wrong way. Maybe we're sleepwalking into something that we can't fully handle. And I think these three criticisms as to why we need to be cautious moving forward are just a few among many of good reasons as why we need to take a step back. We need to take stock of the situation and really look at the Ukraine-Russian conflict. Because at the end of the day, do we really want to be promoting war? I know, of course, it's a huge industry within the United States. And of course, we want to protect the freedom of countries around the world. And we want to ensure their sovereignty. But we also need to keep the long-term view in mind because at the end of the day we may be serving our short-term interests or what we believe to be our short-term interests but if we take into account the future self-interest that looks more like a direct war with russia i think maybe that would outweigh what we see as a short-term interest that's just my opinion on it then again you know i have really mixed opinions on war and sovereignty and I think there are justified wars and sometimes there aren't. And that's a really weird middle ground to walk because you have to find that moral question as to whether war is justified or not. And some people are just outright no. And some critics in here are not totally against war, but they're against war in certain situations. So, of course, you're going to make your own determination. But I think we can all agree that we are sleepwalking and not fully acknowledging the dangers of our actions, or at least looking far forward enough to acknowledge that there may be some ripple effects that we can't fully perceive. All right, let's jump to our next article. This one is a this one's a funny one in my opinion. It comes from Common Dreams. Was the debt ceiling fight a charade from the start? Just follow the big money. And this is why I was trying to draw the side-by-side comparisons that, no, 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 Joe Biden's a moron versus Joe Biden's a mastermind. The last article is the moron, sleepwalking, you get that. This next one really poses it as if this entire debt ceiling fight going back and forth was just a way to pretend that there's bipartisanship or to give in some concessions to the Republicans and Republicans to the Democrats that big money donors want. And it makes it seem like they're sitting there behind the scenes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We'll make sure that we meet today. We'll make sure the media coverage goes this way. We'll, you know, stew over it a little bit, make it look like we're working together. And, you know, at the end of the day, we'll both come out looking heroes on our perspective sides. And it really does try to imply that both sides are masterful manipulators. 
and I don't know if I necessarily believe it. I'm I'm going to be honest. I feel like it was a pretty organic fight on the debt ceiling because Biden at first said he's not going to negotiate at all, and then he had to come down and negotiate. And McCarthy said that, well, you know, I have a contingency, the Freedom Caucus, it's going to make it hard to budge on things. And then he budged on some of the things the Freedom Caucus wanted. So I'm pretty sure both sides didn't want to give up their position, but they came to the negotiating table and came to a deal that was actually just passed, I believe, last night if uh, by Biden. If you're listening to this on Monday, though, then it would have been two nights ago. But... Let's get to the the skepticism that a lot of people feel about this deal, or at least this author does. Quote, whatever one thinks of their legal merits, it is almost odd that Democratic leaders, including the president, played down prospects for cutting off outlandish Republican demands by resorting to unconventional ways out of the crisis, such as minting the fabled trillion-dollar platinum coin or invoking the 14th Amendment. No wonder Paul Krugman voiced skepticism about what was behind the Biden's calculations. Quote, more and more, it looks as if there never was a strategy beyond wishful thinking. I hope that I'm wrong about this, but right now I have a sick feeling about all of this. What were they thinking? How can they have been caught off guard by something that everybody who's paying attention saw coming? End quote. The answer we fear is not edifying. The White House was not caught off guard. Like climate disaster or the crypto meltdown or the tremors now coursing through the American financial system, the high noon showdown between Republicans and Democrats over the debt ceiling was pre-programmed from the start, end quote. And, you know, this is, you know, it is an amusing picture to see McCarthy and Biden standing there with their guns in their holsters. They got their hands on them. And they're saying, oh, you did this, you violated this, I'm going to have you when the the clock strikes noon. And then when the cameras stop rolling, they go up to each other, okay, so hey, Joe, do you want to draw first? Do you, know, do you want me to hit you in the shoulder? Or are we going to both miss and then get a little bit closer? Oh, okay, the cameras are rolling again, let's get back into position. It's just, a, it's an interesting picture to have mentally. And I'm going to be honest, I don't think this is this is true. Just because in order for it to be truly pre-coordinated or in order for it to be truly a facade that is being put on for the public, the Republicans and Democrats would have to sit behind closed doors for the most part and say, okay, what do you need? What do I need? Okay, let's make a deal, but we're going to posture to each side. I don't think the Republicans and Democrats can stand each other enough to do that in the backstages. And you know, maybe the cynical person will say, well, no, 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 they're just posturing to the other party, too. But secretly in their own meetings, they're saying, okay, yeah, we're going to shoot for this, but we're actually going to settle for this. And that's how negotiations go. But when you think of it that way, I would say that's less coordinated, and that's just having a negotiating plan going into the process. So I really don't think, when I first heard this, that, oh, okay, this is definitely like a stage thing or there's any validity to this argument. But the, the author does go on to try to justify it and give some interesting reasons that I think should at least be acknowledged. So let's talk about the sneaky agenda that has been put in or pushed by the wealthy parties that both put in Democrats and Republicans into office. Quote, 
for Democrats in particular, the advantages of first actually passing programs then standing back and reluctantly sustaining votes to take them back are a dream come true for squaring big money politics with folk appeal. That is the real reason the Democratic parties go ahead with debt ceiling rituals. This is not to say that the compromise package is now making headlines is guaranteed to have smooth sailing. Questions about the future policy on permits for oil and gas and green energy access to the electrical grid are already sparking protests. The Inflation Control Act marked a shift in the president's priorities from not only promoting sustainable, but also renewing the U.S. role as a global exporter of natural gas. The debt ceiling account reflects the same dual emphasis. The interests in play here are immensely powerful on both sides, end quote. So what he's saying, what he's trying to point out is, Okay, so we can pass this bill that looks very pro-American, it looks very populist in nature, and it kind of goes against our donor base, but then when the debt ceiling debate comes, we can come to the table and say, okay, hey, we can actually cut some of these programs that are a little bit more pro-populist, you know, getting rid of certain energy schemes or permitting access to different lands that we put restrictions on, we can actually lift those, say that the Republicans had to get a concession from us in order to get the debt ceiling debate rolling, and then we can appear like we were doing work, we were trying hard for the population, but then we actually were going about the agenda of the people who gave us the money to get into office during these debates. And the thing that leads lends a little bit more credit to this is the fact that when the House and the Senate was controlled by Democrats and Biden was in the White House during the transition period after the elections in November, before the January session was started with the new members of the Republican majority in the House, they could have gone and said, okay, hey, we're going to get this debt ceiling thing out of the way. We're going to pass a law now so that the Republicans can't hold it over our heads. And see, the fact that they didn't do that does maybe lend a little bit of credibility to the fact that they were thinking, okay, we've pushed a lot of progressive policies here, and maybe our donors aren't necessarily happy about it. Maybe it's not necessarily 100% fiscally responsible to give away all these things, so we'll let the Republicans be the enemy and take these programs away in May. And that's not me agreeing that, oh, yes, this was all planned. It was all one giant behind-the-scenes maniacal move, but it would strike me as politically savvy. And maybe that's what the author should have framed this as rather than being a mastermind manipulator or a big plan puts forth by the Biden White House saying, oh, yes, 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 in year three we'll have a problem with the debt ceiling and you know our moneyed interests want this, but we have to wait until then. No, I just the way that they frame it makes it sound so, so like it's kind of it makes it feel like they've been watching too much of a political drama. And they're saying, oh, yes, this is House of Cards. You know, it's Frank Underwood with a plan from the second he got into office on how he would deal with these certain things. No, they're just being politically savvy. They realize they're probably going to or at least in November, they had realized, OK, we're losing the House and the Senate. We could you know, possibly get the Republicans to be the enemy and take away some of our programs that our big don money donors don't like, and we'll be willing to budge on those when the debt ceiling conversation does come up. I feel like that's a little bit more realistic, 
And, you know, even then, it still puts gives Democrats and Republicans a lot of credit saying, oh, yeah, they're really smart. They're thinking that far ahead. But as we pointed out in the last article, that doesn't necessarily necessarily always seem to be the case, especially with how hard we're pushing the Ukraine issue. So at the end of the day, I think it was just two people who realized, okay, or two parties that realized, hey, we're coming close to this debt ceiling issue. What can we both give up that's going to make the other side happy and get this thing passed? And, you know, I'm not trying to say that there aren't political strategies going on, but I think, honestly, that Joe Biden is neither a moron or a mastermind. He is an average guy who's getting a little bit senile, who has a team that he built around him in order to help him in these situations. So I just wanted to show that dichotomy with those two articles. And though I'm kind of giggling a little bit here, I think this next article will actually make you giggle a little bit more. And it's a very satirical article. Just know that going in when I'm quoting from it. And if you don't listen to this part and you somehow just pick up, you may be like, Alex, what the heck are you talking about? This sounds crazy. It was just really funny when I started reading it. So this one comes from Daily Kos. Let's have the Space Force take out the mermaids. So Space Force was obviously founded by Trump. And there's been a interesting lack of mission focus. Let's put it that way. And the author starts by describing it. Quote, for a few weeks back, we heard the unnerving news that America's newest military branch, the U.S. Space Force, was still struggling to define a mission for itself after three years of existence. This is generally not what anyone wants to hear from a group of large-scale military capabilities. When military generals start wondering what the scope of their mission might be, they historically tend to collude or conclude that their mission should involve a more proactive approach of blowing things up. But more bluntly, the growing frustration of Space Force generals trying to imagine larger and better defined military roles for themselves is only going to lead to trouble, and we'd better come up with a midnight basketball program for the troubled three-star and four-star generals real quick if we want to avoid being cut off from our whole solar system due to sudden-onset Kessler syndrome, end quote. And, you know, this is, of course, something that's understandable, in my opinion, because a lot of the military institutions that we have in the United States were formed for the purpose of either having a militia to defend yourselves against the Redcoats or in during the revolutionary process, or became were branches of the other military seg- segments, and then were spun off, like, you know, the Marines. They used to be part of the Army, as far as I understand. And I believe the Air Force was part of either the Army or the Navy beforehand. And a lot of the Space Force resources were part of the Air Force before, I also believe. So they have some idea of what their mission is. But, you know, there's not a well-defined war in space. There's, you know, a few different strategic things we need to keep in control. We need to make sure that our satellites are protected, that, you know, no one's violating international law when it comes to space. But even then, it's not like there's a a conflict or there's a very easily definable mission, at least that has been put forward, that I've heard of. So now we come to a mission that they could definitely take on. So there's this new threat that has been brought up by a lovely, lovely woman named Amanda Grace. Quote, I'm speaking, of course, of the coming mermaid wars. Quote, 
I have never seen more images of more mermaids and water people in my life, Grace told the crowd, elaborating that these aquatic forces are, quote, a division of the kingdom of darkness. Underscoring the danger, Grace insisted that these people are, quote, highly technologically advanced, end quote. Before you scoff, know that Amanda Grace is a prophet because she says so, and she and other pro-Trump religious leaders had a whole lot of prophecies on hand, most of them revolving around Donald Trump acting as an inter- instrument of God to smite conservative enemies with their globalists and de- or whether globalists, demons, or mermaids. And you know, end quote. And you know, this honestly makes sense. He saw the mermaids coming. He heard about these intelligence briefings, and he said, "Okay, hey, we need to make sure that we strike them from a place that they can't hit us." So we're going to create Space Force, and then we're going to create these giant rail guns or giant magnetic rod guns where you shoot down a huge rod of metal from space and allow it to get to terminal velocity velocity, so we can shoot right through the water and, you know, disrupt the mermaid's forces. I, you know, I honestly think this was a smart move from Donald Trump, and I think there's something to what Grace was saying here. She, she's a prophet. She, I, you know, I believe her full-heartedly. She is a prophet. God is speaking to her directly, and she knows that Trump is his tool, his hand, his instrument here on Earth, and that's why he created Space Force. And that's the author of the connection, the connection the author makes as well. Quote, the plan is almost self-evident in its simplicity. We're dealing here with water people who are highly technologically advanced. There are no more advanced military forces than the U.S. Space Force. A dullard might consider it the job of the Navy to wage war on the water, but that would literally be meeting the mermaids on their own turf. The Navy is the branch of our armed services most in danger in confrontation with the mermaids. The Air Force could simply fly over the mermaid enemies, dropping bombs, impeding, and turning the ocean into an unpleasantly tinted mermaid stew. The Army and Marines, if faced with a mermaid attack, could simply walk a few hundred feet inland and pick off, uh, pick off each flopping fishtail attacker as they have themselves on the surf. But the Space Force... Space Force is best equipped of all of them to fend to defend against the mermaid menace. That's what I'm saying. They can't get to any of the infrastructure in space. They're locked to the sea. So we can just bombard them, no problem. We don't have to put our Air Force jets in harm's way. We don't have to even worry about them possibly throwing something out of the water to hit our army or our marines. So yeah, I just, you know, I honestly think that Donald Trump if there's one thing that Space Force needs to be used for, it needs to be this mermaid threat. They are coming for us, guys, and we really need to be vigilant about this one. We can't stand for it. We need to remember that two feet are better than a tail, and we are going to win if the mermaids try to attack us because we have Space Force. All right, if you can't tell, I bought into the sarcasm there. I was trying to you know, play it up a little bit. And, you know, maybe one day that will be taken out of context by somebody that wants to say something about me. But, you know, I'm adding this little preface or, sorry, this little section afterwards to declare, yes, that was all in satire. There are no people as far as I'm aware. And Space Force definitely has a better mission that it could follow in the future. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Island Packet. Ferocious desert creature welcomes triplets at NC Zoo. 
So it's hard to imagine cats as a desert creature, but these animals that are in North Carolina Zoo, they're just that. They're desert cats. Quote, the North Carolina Zoo is excited to announce yet another recent birth. Three sand cat kittens were born on May 11th, the zoo said in a June 2nd news release. Quote, small enough to fit into the palm of your hands, the kittens were first born to first-time mother, Sahara, and father Cosmo. Sahara is three, Cosmo is nine, end quote. But they are far from home, I'll tell you that much, because, quote, the snuggly trio are sand cats, a species of feline that calls the deserts of North Africa home, the zoo said, end quote. And they do talk about how they're a little bit ferocious and how they can be very vicious in their natural habitat. So, you know, don't try to get them as cat pets. Just, you know, observe them from far away, admire the beauty of nature and how cats can survive practically anywhere, it seems. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of these guys, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below, the like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast links to Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. I talked about this last week, but I put up a Twitter tirade last Thursday, and that is just a small segment that is a Twitter exclusive where I, you know, I don't necessarily talk about news directly. I don't have quotes. It's just more of me sitting down, giving some thoughts. And if you have made it this far, you think I'm engaging, go check it out on Twitter. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.